Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Rod Black. In his four decades as a broadcaster, Rod has called the action in virtually every sport out there. Everything from CFL football, to basketball, to baseball, to golf, to figure skating, to tennis, to boxing, to bowling, and of course, the big daddy of them all, the Olympic Games. Welcome, Rod, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Thank you. Uh, I'm good. You forgot pickleball. Maybe I will do pickleball someday. I- I'm good. I'm uh, home just north of Toronto. I just live outside the city in a snowy day, but enjoying a little time off right now. I'm busy with some other projects, but uh, excited to be with you. You call it the Toronto Legends podcast, but you've become a legend by doing these podcasts. I've seen the array of uh, celebrities and stars and legends that you've had with you. Well, thank you very much for that. Especially coming from you, it's meaningful. And I want to add, Rod, you're actually a York region legend. I am recording from Richmond Hill, which I guess is just south of you. And I know your good friend, Elvis Stoiko, has been a past guest, and Eric Alper, and lots of talent from York region, including Alan Frew from Newmarket. That's my hood. I love them all. It's funny, I, I, when I first moved to Toronto, I lived in Toronto for, um, I'm from Winnipeg. Uh, when I moved to Toronto, it was a, a little different, the bright lights and big city, and I lived right downtown Toronto uh, up until the early, I guess, mid-90s, then I moved up north to the Markham Unionville area, and then I keep going north. Um, so if you follow uh, my path, my journey in life, I should be probably in Inuit uh, probably by uh, 2044. If I live that long. We will track you. There's still room to go. <laughs> now, Rod, please update us. Who makes up the black household these days? Oh, well, um, we're, we're kind of empty nesters. Uh, we, we, they always come back, though. That's one thing. They, they keep coming back. My wife, Nancy, and I were, uh, were parents to four kids. It wasn't too long ago. We had quite a, a bustling place. You could see, you can hear that it's, it's kind of quiet here right now. And as you get older, you like the quiet. So, but they always come back. So right now I have um, a couple of my sons back. My daughter's in um, Western University. I have one son who goes to Fanshawe. He's kind of going back and forth. I have another boy who is um, on his way back down to school in the United States. He's uh, on a scholarship at a school called Coppin State for baseball. And my oldest son, he's on his way to spring training right now. He's, um, He's a member of the Milwaukee Brewers organization. Despite being a Cincinnati Reds fan and then a Blue Jays fan, Rod, you are, of course, both a Milwaukee Brewers fan and a Coppin State Eagles fan. So why don't you yes. talk about your, uh, your two yeah. boys pursue baseball? Yeah, it is. It's funny how that changes uh, for sure. I, and I actually, when I grew up too, I was a v- huge Expos fan. I loved the Expos growing up. I, I wanted to be the, the next Rusty Staub or Gary Carter and then I started loving the Cincinnati Reds because they were winning. I, I, I'm a bit of a bandwagon jumper. And then, of course, I covered the Blue Jays for so many years. So who, who would have thought through all of the years that my my two oldest, who were hockey heads for such a long time, we were such a strong hockey family, all of my kids played hockey, that uh, these two boys would, would gravitate to baseball. But they were always around. They were always around the broadcast booth when I was doing the Blue Jay games. Um, about a decade or so ago and, and when they were really young and they just soaked it in and they loved it. And it's been a dream of theirs, you know, uh, for, for such a long time. They, they, they love the game. They watch the game. They play the game. And I, I guess my wife must have a really good arm or something because uh, 
it's it's certainly something I didn't think that both of them would get into. But um, yeah, Brody's at Coppin State, and it's his last year. And it's an HBCU, a historically black college university. It's been a tremendous experience for him. Uh, has an opportunity to also become a professional. And for Tyler, he's he's kind of been this uh, natural since he's been a kid. He he loved the game. He he grew up following the Blue Jays, but you know he was a big Derek Jeter fan, and then an Aaron Hill fan of the Blue Jays, and uh, just kept getting better and better. We I coached him a little bit, and we have a cage in our backyard, and I throw to them every day, and they seem to really love the game. They they and worked hard at the game, and it paid off. Uh, you know. A couple of years ago, he got drafted. He went to Wright State University, which helped him out a lot, by the way. Uh, and then he got drafted in the first round by the Milwaukee Brewers. And he's got a really good opportunity this year to to make it to the big leagues. So I, I, I would encourage anybody, I'm sure you've had a lot of people on your show and they, you know, you ask them about their aspirations or dreams. For mine was probably to be in sports. I got into broadcasting because I, I, I sucked at sports. Uh, <laughs> wasn't that bad. But never give up on that dream. If you have a dream, it's 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 insane what can happen. You write that dream down, and next thing you know, it takes flight. And uh, for both of those boys, it's certainly uh, they're they're living in the clouds right now. A Toronto Legends podcast connection because past guest Rob Butler is now running baseball training with his brother Rick. I heard that. I heard that podcast. I'm a huge Rob Butler fan, and. A, we're buddies. Um, it goes back to 1993 when uh, Rob played for the Blue Jays. I was hosting the broadcast at the World Series, and it's kind of one of the first times that season that I had met him. And, you know, it was this young kid back then who got a chance to play for the Blue Jays, his hometown team. A Canadian had rarely won the World Series. He wins the World Series. Uh, it was an amazing moment. I, if, you, if you just go to YouTube and look up his interview, I mean, it's priceless when he's uh, had that kind of porn star mustache back then, the mullet hair, and he, he was uh, soaking in the champagne. He was sky high. It was a moment I'll never forget, and he was shouting out uh, Scarborough and East York and, of course, his brother Rich. And then, lo and behold, probably, I would say, about another 14, 15 years later, Rob started coaching my boys uh, and and training them and developing them, Rob and Rich both. And, and honestly, both of them probably aren't where they are in baseball if it wasn't for that moment and time where they got some really good advice and some coaching from the Butler brothers. But Rob Butler doesn't get enough credit still for being such a huge part of that 93 World Series. And still the only Canadian to win a World Series with the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, which is which is almost hard to believe. We've had a few Canadians. That, you know what that means, though? <laughs> it's been a while since we won the World Series, too. And one of these days... And it's going to be very hard, especially if I get back in the booth someday, if the Blue Jays make it to the World Series and they play the Milwaukee Brewers. I, I'm going to have a very difficult... I'll probably just stay at home and watch it on TV. Now, Rod, let's start with present day. Two and a half years ago, you departed the TSN, CTV, Bell Media family. What is Rod Black up to these days? Well, I'm, uh, I'm sitting talking with you. I'm washing cars. I'm delivering newspapers. <laughs> No, I, I've been very busy. I, I, you know, one of the things that when, um, my departure happened, uh, my, I guess I was 2021. Is that right? I had really, not that I was wanted to do something else, but I was really kind of growing a little disenchanted with, with where I wanted the things that I wanted to do. And I, there was as many sports as you said that I covered and I love them all, by the way, 
There's not one that I like more than the other. I really wanted to do more. And uh, there were so many other things. And I, I wanted to get into the, the radio and the podcast world. And I wanted to do more production. I loved my charity work that I was doing uh, just because it, it it was so fulfilling. And it was, it was um, to me, people always, you know, thank people for, do, for you know, what they do for charity. I, I thank the charities because it just gave me a good perspective. I live in the toy department. You know, <laughs> really, I got a lot of toys. Sports is uh, scores and, and, and wins and losses and ties. But I started writing some books. I'm writing a book right now been involved in a lot of, like I said, projects. I, I, I went back in the booth last year, last couple of years, I started doing games again. I miss doing games. I really do. And so I, I fulfill that. I do some work in the United States. I did some work recently with ESPN, some basketball stuff, but you know, I, I think the, the, the word retire was used that I never, I never retired. <laughs> in fact, I'm on, I'm on freedom 95. Remember I told you I got, I got four kids. So it doesn't matter how much money they make. You still got to pay for them through the years. But I just love being around the games. And uh, as well, I have an ownership stake, a minority ownership stake now in the Toronto Maple Leafs Intercounty Baseball League. I'm I'm getting involved in a lot of stuff that I never could do before. And I guess I'm rambling, but it, it's that's kind of my life. I'm a rambling, rambling man now. And anybody who says has a request, I, I, I hope to fulfill it. And my kind of my lifelong mantra has been, I never say no. So this is what I do. Absolutely. And as you well know, the best ability is availability. So you never, yeah. you can never go wrong. Yeah, that's, that's true. Even though you've been clean shaven for almost 20 years, my Rod Black still has that outstanding mustache and therefore it would be outrageous not to talk about it. Tom <laughs> Selleck had an amazing mustache. It's been retired. Body Breaks, Hal Johnson had an amazing mustache. It too has been retired. And when you retired your mustache in 2006, the change was noted and decried in no less than the <laughs> Prince Albert Daily Herald, which wrote, quote, Rod Black without a mustache is like pizza without pepperoni, hockey without ice, or a newspaper without a sports section. Still good, but not quite the same, unquote. Rod. Please share with us the history and future status of the Rod Black Duster. Oh, goodness. Truth be known, some people thought I gave it to, to Borat. I did not. Uh, it was so, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, though. And uh, it was a cheesy thing, man, I'm telling you. But I had it since I was like probably 14. And everybody back then, back in the 70s and 80s, everybody had a mustache. Everybody thought they were Tom Selleck. Or a cop. Even women had mustaches. It was it was unbelievable back then. But everybody had a mustache. And so I had one. I sported that thing for a long time. Never took it off. Uh, it's funny about the Selleck thing. I remember I would work for the CTV affiliate back in Winnipeg. And uh, when they did their promos, you know, they had the Tom Selleck, you know, the eyebrow thing and the, the looking at the camera with the Detroit Tigers cap and the, the Hawaiian shirt. And they got me to wear that and do the same thing. And and so I, some, sometimes, by the way, you should never say, you should say no. And I should have said no to that, but anyway, it didn't matter. So I started using, uh, that, that mustache thing was, um, it became, I guess, part of my, part of my persona. But then I was, I was working for Canada AM, uh, gosh, in the early two thousands. And I remember my son Brody had come up to me one day and he was just a little guy. And he said to me, he had this little gravelly voice and he said, 
Daddy, I've never kissed you without a mustache. And, you know, through the mouths of babes, I, uh, I shaved that off right there so I could kiss him because he was so young. And I never put it back on. I just, uh, I just at, took it off. And then I, I think I might have put it on for a bit. And then they shaved me on my final day of Canada AM live on the air. And uh, even during, um, what is it called, Movember, I, I, there are times when I, I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, about putting that thing on, especially for charity. And maybe one of these days it's going to have to take a lot of money. It, it has been officially retired uh, in some sort of mustache hall of fame, if there is any mustache hall of fame. Now, Rod, it's time to please go all the way back at the Rod Black story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? Uh, born in Winnipeg, Manitoba in the early 60s. I was uh, cold Winnipeg, Manitoba, but warm Winnipeg, Manitoba, because the people there are so friendly and warm. Loved where I grew up, loved the city. Uh, it was all about sports when I was growing up. Every day, every moment, I, we'd be outside playing in the local neighborhood. We didn't have much. We had barely enough to eat, I think. My dad was a very proud man, had a, was a, of a junior hockey player, former junior hockey player who um, unfortunately didn't make it because of injury for him. But we grew up in a suburb called Transcona, which is uh, east of uh, downtown Winnipeg. It's kind of like Scarborough without the romance. And, and it is, it was, uh, it was wonderful. I, I, I loved my upbringing. It was all about sports, uh, a lot of love in the home. I had three brothers, you know, we'd, we'd fight like cats and dogs, but we play like buddies all the time and played a lot of sports coached by my dad. Uh, also had this thing in the back of my mind about entertainment, I think I, and, and being in, and I never wanted dreamed of being a sportscaster until later in life, but I kind of dreamed that maybe I'd be a radio guy someday because I did a lot of voices and impressions and all of these things. So I was like 10 and 11. I used to phone into the radio stations unbeknownst to my my parents who were sleeping at the time. And I do these impressions and I'd be on the air almost every morning on this radio show and nobody knew who it was me. And then, so it was kind of like this little side hustle that I had, but it was, it was fun. And, you know, as I grew up, I, I, I won't forget those days. It full of friendships and, and, and family, cold winter days, warm summer nights, thousands and thousands and thousands of mosquitoes, <laughs> but priceless memories all surrounding sport. There was not a day that went by that there wasn't a game on television or a game being played outside that I somehow wasn't watching or involved in. Now, Rod, Bobby Hall was your guy, and when it was rumored the WHA's Winnipeg Jets would be acquiring him, you effectively ran away from home, dragging a younger brother along. Yeah, yeah, good research. You're right, you're right. Uh, it was, uh, my dad worked for uh, BACM Construction uh, just down the street, and uh, they were owned by the Simpkin Brothers, they were called, and they happened to be part owners of this Jets team that was coming. And it wasn't far, we were just less than a kilometer away. And it was, I remember it was a spring, early, late spring, early summer day. It was hotter, hotter than hell outside. And my dad had told us the night before that Bobby Hall's going to sign. Nobody knew. And I told my brother, we ran away from Hall, <laughs> made a little lunch, got there really early in the morning before sunup. And uh, he was crying, I recall. And, 
and he wanted to go home. And I said, no, what's happening? And I thought, kept thinking it's, but, but we were there till like noon outside camped out. And sure enough, he, the, the golden jet arrived and we were the first ones to meet him. And it was, it was a day I'll never for like, I never forgot it. It was like, he was like this shining knight, this hockey hero. when he walked into this front office at BACM, but and I got to know him through the years, which is crazy because, oh, and he signed a big, I remember a big piece of wood for us. And he asked, answered all the stupid questions. I was, guess I was becoming a sports reporter that I had about, you know, you know, how do you work on your slap shot? And I remember him saying, kid, don't work on the slap shot, work on the, work on the wrist shot and all of those things. And he was so nice. And I ended up working with him uh, years later, crazily enough with my hero and he was always so nice, and I did so many interviews with him because he came back to Winnipeg and was honored. And then, unfortunately, you know, you 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 learn a lot more about your heroes as well as as life goes on. Because you know, Bobby had some demons, and he had some issues. And as everybody knows, he and in Winnipeg too. He and unfortunately that that hero status of for him, the 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 shine wore off because of a, a couple of incidents that he was involved with, generally involving alcohol. You know, it's, it's too bad because he, he, he gave so much to so many people. I'm really torn when, you know, you see it, then you realize later, I never saw any of that. I never saw any of that, but you realize later that everybody is capable of having a dark side and clearly Bobby had a dark side. Well, it's a good example. Not everything's black and white in life. Now, Rod, you have been upwardly mobile since the beginning. You very quickly went from skate guard to DJ at the local roller rink in Winnipeg. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Which, uh, I got hired. That was my first job. I didn't have a job. And, um, I was like 15 years old and I say roller skating was so popular. So it was, it was an exciting time. Roller skating was huge. You know, you can't look it up on YouTube, how big it was because there, there weren't any camera phones back then. It was just like stills, but it was popular. It was, it was like the nightclub for kids, you know, and for young adults. And it, people would line up in minus 30 degree weather to, to be at, you know, to, to get to the rink and they, they would come and it was, it was fantastic for, for about three or four years. And I got the, I was lucky enough to get a job as a skate car. Didn't even know how to skate. I learned how to skate. Even though I was a hockey player, I thought, oh, I can, I'm a good hockey player. No, roller skating was very different. And as it turned out, I ended up, uh, going to the rink and seeing this, this guy in a booth and doing announcements and playing music. And I went, man, I want to be that dude. And so a couple of weeks later, I tried out as a, a DJ and I loved it. It was like, honestly, probably was a precursor to what I, I do now. It certainly gave me the comfort and the confidence to be in front of a crowd and be in front of a mic. And it was, it was awesome. And and from there, you know, I, I graduated to, I guess you'd call it graduated to a, a nightclub uh, down the road and eventually got into communications and the rest is kind of history. I, I, I got into broadcasting, but I guess, you know, I honestly, it, it probably started with that first push I got at the roller rink. You got to start somewhere. And then, well, attending Red River College at the age of 18, you got your first media job at CKY. This was yeah. Winnipeg's CTV affiliate. Yeah. It is so funny because I honestly had swear on a Bible, even though I'm not religious, I, I, I that I, never dreamed that I would be able to get a job on television at the time because I, 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 that cheesy mustache I had was really wispy. I had basically an Afro. 
I looked like a younger, uh, not younger Tom Selleck, more like uh, Gabe Kaplan. Uh, welcome back, Cotter. There's there's a reference going way back. You can look it up. I, I have the big bushy afro, and, and and quite frankly, I didn't think anybody at the time my age would was on television reporting sports or reporting news or doing anything on TV besides a kid's show. So I was I was taking creative communications in Red River Community College, thinking I'd probably get into radio, perhaps, or advertising. Or Journalism wasn't really... I, I, I liked covering the stories. I just didn't like typing because there was a manual typewriter back there. It was bang, bang. And it just oh, it was, it drove me crazy. And then, sure enough, uh, I was at Red River and I heard that there was a job opening, local job opening at CKY TV, just down the road, CTV affiliate. They were looking for a young sports reporter. I don't think they said young. They were looking for a sports reporter. And in my class, every they were coming to Red River to look at the applicants and interview them. And I said, oh man, I can't do that. I'm way too young. I was the youngest guy in my class. Everybody was 20s, 30s, even in their 40s. Heck, we had one person in their 50s and they were all applying. I knew that. Then one of the dudes came up to me and said, you know, that's a perfect job for you. I said, no, I can't do it. And then I, the, light, the light bulb went off and I think my dad told me too, you should try this. And I ended up going down and making sure I was first in line that day. And and uh, <laughs> I interviewed for the job and sure enough, I, I got the job. And unfortunately, I didn't finish the course. I, I had my job. I said, that's it. Screw school. <laughs> and uh, I had always in the back of my mind though, for those of you out there, never, never, never quit anything you begin. And it wasn't really because I was quitting. I just had started something that was unbelievable. Changed my life, obviously. But that always was in the back of my head. And you know how sometimes you have dreams? I'm sure you have dreams. So I still had dreams though that I never uh, finished that course. And I've always regretted not finishing it. And then I guess about 15 years later, 10, 15 years later, uh, mostly because I didn't, I, I didn't complete a lot of the, including television. I, I hate to say I didn't complete the television course. They honored me by giving me the diploma. It wasn't an honorary. It, they looked at the body of work that I had. So it's funny, once I had that diploma, I never had that dream again. So anyway, as I said, never, never stop, you know, doing it, what you're, what you're doing, finish, finish what you were doing. And then I got into the, I got it to CKY, got the job and such a young guy at the time getting a chance to go on the air and, and learn. And I, it, I treated it honestly, I treated it like a continuation of, of school. I my buddies were all out at the bars. I still went to the bars, but I go after midnight because that's how I worked. But I would work 12 hours days. So I work overnight sometimes just to perfect, try to perfect a craft that, you know, I wasn't, frankly, I mean, if, if you look at my audition tape, if, if I didn't get a job, anybody can get a job at, at the time. And, but I worked at it and I really took, I, it was like, I want, this is what I want to do. Put my nose down, put my head down and busted my ass. I did not want to, fail at this. I wanted to do this for the rest of my life because it was, it honestly was like the toy department and the greatest job. And I had great people surrounding me, teaching me, mentoring me. And lo and behold, that opportunity led to even more opportunities. And the next opportunity was in Toronto. What brought you, Rod, to Toronto in 1990? What brought me, I was at the point, I had done it for eight years. I'd been doing local sports. I would, and I was really getting, um, a real nibble of what it was like to to do some big time sports. I was doing Jets games. Uh, 
I was broadcasting. I had an opportunity at a couple of network events. I really I thought, oh, this is what I wanted to do. I had conscripted a an agent from the United States because I wanted to get to a bigger station. I was growing a little impatient. I didn't want to leave home. I, I never wanted to leave Winnipeg. Honestly, I, I love the place so much. And to this day, you know, we, we were becoming, we were just becoming big fish, fish in a small pond. We were pond. We were becoming a, a whale in a swimming pool. It was, we were enjoying our time and it, you know, there was, it's a kind of intoxicating. You get, you know, you see why a lot of people just stay and they, they never, you know, had to never grow older. Or, or never move on. They just grow older in their job. So I, I, I really kind of was getting impatient. I thought the next, I'd like to go to the next step and I wanted to do big time sports in any sport. And I got a call. I, I got a call out of the blue uh, from a guy named Doug Beforth to first of all, do the Canadian Open, host the Canadian Open in 1989. Sorry, 1990. It was in 1990. And I thought, wow, it's an opportunity. I was, and I was, you know, it was network stuff and I was kind of really nervous, but I got through it and I'd heard that they were looking for a network announcer, a network host, Johnny Esau, the late Johnny Esau, who I truly admired was retiring. Uh, CTV had quite a few properties, including the Olympics, which they had, they had just acquired 92 and 94 games. And they were looking at hiring a host or hosts. A number of people were in the running for the job, I, I believe, including my my sports director, my boss at the time in Winnipeg. I just, I didn't think I was going to get it. But after I did the Canadian Open a few weeks later, I, I got the call to come to Toronto and I never looked back. It was, you know, it was like I won the Stanley Cup. I, it was life-changing. I I remember having tears leaving Winnipeg and leaving my family and friends. And unfortunately, as you know, you, you know, your friendships when, when you move away never quite are the same. Um, I think a lot of people also thought, well, he's, you know, Mr. Big Time now going to network television. I, I tried to get back as much as I can and could. You know, my parents passed a few years ago, but I generally got to Winnipeg a lot. I still was working Jets games. I had a foundation set up, a charity golf tournament. It was such an important city in my life. It's home. You never leave home. But once I came to Toronto and got a taste of network television, it, it, it was it was so consuming. It was... it it, it Again, getting a chance to do all the big time events uh, was, I don't even want to say it was a dream come true. It, it was like this, this was like I won the lottery. Well, the Olympic Games was such a huge part of your career. You covered so many of them. 1992, Summer Games Barcelona. 1994, Winter Games Lilyhammer. 2002, the Winter Games in Salt Lake City. 2010, our home games, the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. And 2012 Summer Games in London. Rod, would you say these were the highlights of your career? You know, they were up there. It's, people ask me, yeah, for sure. The, there's nothing like the Olympics. I would, I would say they're, in terms of prestige, I guess, for sure. 1992 was amazing. Barcelona, my, my really, my first games, being around it was, was incredible. Again, you get a taste and you go, I want to do more. And then 94, Lillehammer, I think Lillehammer might have been anybody who was around it, especially us covering it in this little town in Norway. I don't even know if they had 2,000 people in their population. And they pulled off this incredibly spectacular, memorable Winter Olympics. It may have been the best Olympics ever. 96, I actually went to 96. I got called down after the bombing in Atlanta, and then I covered it for CTV for uh, the final week. And then I got to cover Donovan Bailey's race, which was mind-blowing 2010 was 
unbelievable at home in Vancouver, getting a chance to call gold medals from, you know, the Canadian figure skaters, Virtue and Moyer, to uh, the short track speed skaters and everything in between. 2012 was, was cool going to London. We only won one gold medal, Canada, and it was, I, I was the one who called it. And in the great sport of trampoline, Rosie McLennan. But it, yeah, you get to an Olympics, you want to get back. It's luck and pluck too. It's, I'm probably going to be going to the next couple of games as well, working as a freelancer for a, a world feed. But you know, you're basically also at the whim of the rights holders. And so, you know, when we didn't go to the games, it was because CBC did the games. And, you know, and then when we got it back, it was because CTV got the games back and CBC does a terrific job. I mean, they, they honestly have been the, the faces and voices of the Olympics for so many years. Brian Williams, of course, here in Atlanta, Georgia, here at 7 o'clock p.m. It's 8 o'clock. You know, you always give the time. But getting a chance to do it was a gift. And so, yeah, it was big. Yeah, there is nothing quite like getting a chance to be at the Olympics. Well, I think one of the reasons for your success was that you are a jack of all trades. You can cover everything. And in fact, Rod, you aren't just a sports guy. You also served as a co-host of Canada AM, notably on your second day breaking the news of the 9-11 terrorist attack in 2001. What are your <laughs> recollections from that morning gig and from that particular day? You know, beyond the pandemic in our lifetime, there was probably nothing in Canada more profound, more impactful in my lifetime than that day. It, it, Anybody who was around it, anybody who covered it, clearly it was such an emotional day. I, I think I had PTSD from covering it for, to this day. It was both bizarre, clearly strange, horrific, catastrophic. It wasn't why I signed up to do Canada AM, clearly. I would like, I used to say, you know, I, I, when they got me to do the job while I was doing sports, because I said, I said yes to everything, they said, hey, this is you, I get to do it. It's, it's entertainment, it's sports, it's lifestyle, it's waking people up in the morning, putting a smile on their face. That's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I often said that it's the only show that you can interview Prime Minister Joe Clark, singer Terry Clark, and hockey player Wendell Clark in the same hour. That's what I, what I signed up for. And then the second day, Lisa Laflamme, myself, Jeff Hutchinson, who were on the show, we were the new team, really got along well. I was really looking forward to it. I knew I wasn't going to do it long. I promised them basically two years because I really, sports is, is, is what I, I really enjoy doing most. And then I was sitting there in an interview. I believe it was Bill Brio, TV guide, critic. We we're talking about the upcoming season of shows, the fall shows. And it was about 10 to 9. And suddenly Shelly Ayers, who was a producer, for us, got, got in my earpiece. Everybody, I'm sure, knows everybody wears earpieces. The director and producer get a chance to chat with you, tell you how to go to break. And she goes, Rod, we're going to go to break. And I'm thinking, well, uh, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center in New York City. Now, I still think we probably were the first people to tell anybody that because we crazily, ironically, coincidentally had a camera fixed on the World Trade Center, because we were having a guest from New York coming up in our next hour. And it was all, it was so immediate, unless somebody was live, and I don't think anybody was live 
with a shot in New York City of the World Trade Center. So we didn't have the shot live, but we had been recording. And so we showed it coming out of break. We all thought it was an accident. It had happened in New York before. A plane had flown into the Empire State Building. There's so much air traffic. I had flown over New York City, though, five days beforehand doing a broadcast, a Blue Jays broadcast. And I remember saying, thinking that, I, I don't know why, crazily thinking, boy, this is, we're really close. So that's what I was thinking. And I'm kind of, as we're going through it at nine o'clock, we, we're live and we're showing the replay of the first plane going through. And we, we're looking, oh, there's a hole there. We have the FAA on. Kennedy and was so good at getting their resources. We had FAA on and the guy was talking about this whole, you know, we're going to have to try to get a water bomber in, yada, yada. And all of a sudden, the same time, another plane flies straight into the World Trade Center. And right there, I'm going, all right, <laughs> this isn't sports or even news anymore. This is something completely, completely different than we've ever seen. And now we were on the air and we knew right away it wasn't an accident. It was a terrorist attack. We had so many resources we went to. We went live and most of the day. I think my sports background kind of helped me because we don't really use scripts in sports. We're like weather people. We kind of tap dance a lot. That helped me kind of tap dance through the day. It was traumatic. I remember seeing the guests that we were having who were coming up all circled around or probably were about 40 to 50 people behind the cameras just watching what was unfolding. Of course, those guests weren't on the show anymore. Everybody who was working came down to our studio, was watching. Uh, we didn't have internet then. We only had a wire service. And it, uh, it, how it worked back then, it was a printer that dinged every time a big story happened. I've seen it ding a lot through my years. I remember working at CKY in Winnipeg and it would ding, you know, earthquake, forest fire, you know, tornado. Wayne Gretzky gets traded, ding, ding, ding. This thing didn't stop buzzing and dinging. I remember Sandy Ronaldo was there. She came and didn't go on air. She was just helping sort out all the, all the newsprint wire copy that was coming over, all the news. I'll never forget looking down and we're trying to source out which, what is real, what is not. There were planes flying into buildings everywhere. According to, you know, Canadian jets over Vancouver trying to escort a because planes were told to, to get to the ground. We were attacked. And for the first time on North American soil. And it was like war to be there in the middle of this and try to make sense of all this. It was daunting. And, I, you know, my kids were so young. My, I only had Tyler at the time. He was probably only about six, seven months old. Uh, my wife was at a hairdresser. My mom was in town looking after Tyler. Everybody was freaking out again. We had mobile phones. Everybody's phoning everybody. I don't, there wasn't texting back then. There was nothing. Could you imagine? It was nuts. You know, I, we all kept our cool. I mean, that was daunting of a moment as it was. We all kept our cool. We got through it. I remember coming off the air and I think her name was Trina McQueen. Uh, news director came over and commented about our, the, you know, congratulated us on their job. Nobody should get congratulated for reporting the news. And, and that's when it kind of hit me. And, you know, I remember kind of tearing up a little bit and wondering what the hell is going on here? Because I was thinking about all my friends and family. I knew somebody who was in the World Trade Center. As it turned out, I knew Ace Bailey, one of the scouts who had died in the, one of the plane crashes. And as the days went on, it got worse, Andrew, and worse and worse. And, you know, the stories kept coming out. We, we were in complete lockdown in the world for those days. As we made a visit down there, it was, it was just a real reckoning for me. But it wasn't a reckoning which said I wanted to keep doing this. Some people love that stuff in news. They love those news stories. 
that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to report on death and destruction. So it was hard for the next couple of years, instead of talking about all those things I said earlier, you know, we were talking about terrorism and Al Jazeera and Al Qaeda and, um, you know, the, our, our, our Muslim friends were taking so much heat, um, and criticism and, um, uh, we're being bullied everywhere. It was just not a good time in the world. And, you know, we were doing stories on both sides. It was one of the reasons, honestly, that I just decided after a while, just that this is beating me up. I'm, I'm going to step aside. I'm going back to sports. Again, we're only the messengers, but it was, oh man, it had a profound effect, lasting effect to this day. Absolutely crazy that you were kind of in the middle of it. And thankfully, and hopefully a once in a lifetime experience. Now, Rod, with the career you've had, you have come across many, many, many interesting personalities. I'd like to ask you about a few of them. Yeah. Bill Rettens met you before playing his first NBA game in 1983 when his Philadelphia yeah. 76ers traveled to Winnipeg to play a preseason game against the Denver Nuggets. You subsequently ended up working together in the broadcast booth for the very first game in Toronto Raptors history. Please share your friendship with longtime Raptors broadcasting partner, Leo Rettens. No, he's like a brother to me, and uh, we became brothers, and we'll remain brothers. To uh, We always say that we're going to end up on some porch in this senior citizen's home someday, and we'll be recalling our stories of all of our uh, games that we did and all of our uh, late nights that we had. There were, a lot, well, there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. Uh, but he was, uh, I couldn't have asked for a better partner at the time when CTV got the NBA rights. And that was before the Canada AM thing too. Um, it was in 1995, 1996. I had met Leo again. I, w I was an aspiring basketball player at one time, truth be known. It wasn't bad until I saw Leo play and I went, oh, no, no, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, no, <laughs> I saw him, Jay Tran. No, I think I'm going to do something else. But I always loved the game and followed the game. And 83, I saw him. He was the first round draft pick. In Winnipeg, they were playing an exhibition game. Dr. J was my hero. And uh, un unfortunately, Dr. J didn't play that game, but Leo did. And uh, he went off that night. And uh, we became, we, because of that connection, we became buddies a little bit. We, he got in the media business too and was playing for the national team. We saw each other. We actually did a couple of games together in 1990, just after the 92 Olympics. We did the world championships in 94, 1994. But then when I learned that, that I would be broadcasting games with Leo. We were just so comfortable together. I mean, it's it's like we complete each other's sentences. We're, we are an old married couple, but we have a good time. And I, I some of the best days I've ever had as a broadcaster have been with Leo. We've shared so much together. He's such a great guy. A, I defy anybody. You know, they could say whatever. Again, I people have their own opinions, but there is nobody in Canada has known more about basketball than Leo Routens and James Naismith. <laughs> you know, Naismith invented the game. He is, knows more about the game. He taught me a lot about the game. He taught me a lot about being a dad. He was a, also the father to, to four kids and a uh, great father, lousy drinker, <laughs> loves dogs, good man, just a good man. And I was, I, you know, Andrew, I was so lucky That's, that Leo kind of set, I was doing, you know, a variety of different games and, and, and sports. I can tell you, you might even ask me that, but I can tell you that I never had anybody who was adversarial or I didn't like in the broadcast booth. And Leo set the standard though. As much as I loved everybody else, 
Leo was first, and they were all tied for second. Another great guy is your friend, Charles Barkley. And <laughs> with him goes all the way back to 1992. And apparently there is a Leo Wrighton's connection there as well. Yeah, if it, uh, my, my, yeah, Charles Barkley, my, my favorite guy, man. He's my favorite guy, y'all. Andrew, good to be on your show with legends, man. I'm a legend in Canada. I'm big. I'm big everywhere. I just absolutely love the guy. Um, and I got to know him in 1992 at the Olympics, the Dream Team. I was uh, heavily do, heavily involved with the Nike guys at the time, hosting my first games. And I went. I remember going to a press conference with the Dream Team. And, and I, for, for whatever reason, I bumped into Charles. And I had mentioned that I was buddies with Leo. And a lot of people don't know that Charles Barkley got his start in the NBA because of Leo Routens. Leo was drafted in 83 in the first round. Injuries, championship team. Charles Barkley gets drafted in 1984. But the only way that they could get Charles on that team get some playing time was to trade Leo. So in, in effect, if Leo doesn't move, Charles made him not, the mound route or rebound may have never, ever started that legendary career that he did. Uh, so yeah, we became, we became such pals. Um, and 95, the Raptors come in. He's such a good dude. He's just the most normal guy I've ever met. More normal superstar athlete, opinionated, but you know what I think he loved? He loved Canada, first of all. And he loved loves Leo and loved hanging around with us. But he loved the fact if you can chirp back at him. So we just gave it to him. And sure enough, we developed this friendship that grows today. I know he, he always gives me... I get embarrassed because he gives me these shout-outs all the time on NBA, on TNT. Anytime it goes to something about Toronto, I love Toronto, man. I love Toronto. My friend Rod Black and Christine Simpson and... Paul Jones and Leo Routens. I love Canada. Every time and everybody goes, you know, I'll get a text. Hey, Charles shouting you out. But I think that says a lot about Charles. He's just a good dude. And, you know, I truthfully, I spent my honeymoon with him, not Charles and I, but my wife and I. We've, uh, whenever he comes to town, we get together. I wish I saw more of him. I'm not doing games now, so I don't get to see as much. But hopefully down the road, that'll change. Generous soul. Kind-hearted. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I say to him all the time, I said, dude, you are on TV more than the Geico lizard, man. You are on every commercial. Do you, here, I'm going to tell you, buddy, you, you ever heard of the word overexposed? He goes, shut the F up, man. Shut up, man. Hey, my banker don't talk about overexposed. He is beloved and he definitely knows how to uh, leverage his uh, image for sure. Yeah. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Chef Susur Lee, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN Ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs Captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. Now, Rod, in 1992, you were covering the Barcelona Summer Olympics. And on the same day, you came across three huge names. Evander Holyfield. This was pre-Mike Tyson biting when he still had two complete ears. Yeah. Jenner, obviously, before transitioning to yep. Caitlyn Jenner. And O.J. Simpson, before he may or may not have killed two people. Rod, please share your interactions with these <laughs> Three legendary yeah. sports icons. 
you know, you, you can't make that up. Can't make that shit up. Like I, um, it, I don't think it was the same day, but it was pretty close. It was in within 24 hours. John Shannon, great, great producer. One of the greatest producers I ever worked with, um, became uh, a, a less than average broadcaster. I'm only kidding. I became a broadcaster and podcaster. Brilliant mind, brilliant producer. He and I were working the late night prime time shift. Uh, so it was late night and we're the only ones around. Uh, earlier in the day, we go for an ice cream. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, we got to get Evander Holyfield, man. He's, he's working here. He's doing, he's like an ambassador here. Holyfield, of course, was one of the greatest amateur fighters and, of course, became earless at one point <laughs> down the road. <laughs> but, uh, and I, so he's, I, I, I can't believe it. He's actually walking down the hallway with this huge entourage, huge entourage. I say to, I say to Shannon, I go, we got to get him. Roddy, Roddy, call me, Roddy, Roddy. Not a fucking chance. We're not getting him. We're not getting him. Not a chance. I said, watch. So Holyfield, we're walking near the ice cream. He's going for an ice cream too. And he's right behind us. And then I, Vander, I happen to know, I think what my in was, was I was great friends growing up with Donnie Lalonde, guy who helped change my life a lot. Um, the golden boy, world light heavyweight boxing champion in the 80s. Fought Sugar Ray Leonard. Legend in, in Canadian boxing. And, and honestly, truly one of my true brothers in life. And I, I mentioned Donnie's name. And he goes, oh yeah, Donnie, Donnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, hey, listen, I work for CTV. We broadcast would love to have you on. And I could see his eyes. He's just, there's, there's not a chance. He's going, no effing way. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to buy you an ice cream if you do the interview. It looks like he's staring at me. He's going, All right. <laughs> so, so we got an interview thanks to an ice cream. And then later, you can't make this up, bumping into it within a span of two minutes because they were working for NBC. And we were doing, I was doing some other afternoon stuff with an ENG unit for those of you listeners uh who don't know what that is it's like a, a it's a it's a remote camera and it was on tape and so again I was in the hallway and Jenner and, and OJ are standing right there so I can't remember it was like a two minute three minute thing but I said big day today at the Olympic uh Stadio Olimpico uh where the decathlon was was uh being raced today and I've come over. Bruce Jenner joins us now from NBC, who was the commentator. Jenner does his thing. Then I say, of course, you know, also the track champ. I, I can't remember what it was. It, I'd have to look back at the tape. It was maybe the the one, the start of the relays. And joining us is the trackside reporter. Here's OJ Simpson. You can't make that shit up. Within a span of like five minutes, here I am chatting with Bruce Jenner and OJ Simpson in 1992. Fast forward to 2022. You tell me that their lives haven't inextricably changed. And now, again, O.J. Simpson, you can say what you want. I mean, whatever is that clearly, I mean, you know, people all have their own opinions and with the sake of not getting a lawsuit, but it, clearly the, the, the man had some issues. Bruce Jenner, I, he was a Superman in 1976 and then he became a superwoman. And, you know, I think in the time, there was such a lack of tolerance in the LGBTQ community wasn't around. Such a lack of tolerance from from society around transitioning and transgender. To me, it's nothing nowadays. That's life nowadays, and it should be life. But back then, there was these stigmas and that. I love the ESPN documentary. I saw it, remember, last year. Because I was always kind of questioning, you know, like, 
so how did Bruce Jenner become Caitlyn Jenner? And I, again, the ignorance that we have in our, in our own minds about how that happens, what happens. Um, I think they're called Untold, Untold, ESPN Untold. Watch that show and you'll understand why Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner and the story around that. And the amount of respect that I have for they is astounding because of what, but again, back in 1992, if you had ever said to me that Bruce Jenner is going to become a woman and OJ Simpson is going to spend a long jail sentence for um, threatening somebody over the memorabilia that was stolen from him because he uh, murdered his wife, <laughs> you know, like, or went through the stuff they did. It's <laughs> Remember we talked about the Olympics and how powerful the Olympics are? That's the power of the games. The most unpredictable things can happen. You do not get more surreal than that. Now, Rod, you mentioned world champion, the golden boy, Donnie Lalonde, who was a great friend of yours growing up in Winnipeg. In fact, you later joined him for a training camp in New York City where you <laughs> met a very nice young man with the nickname Iron Mike. Yeah, I guess this was probably in the late to mid-80s. Late to mid this is before Donnie fought Sugar Ray Leonard. And uh, we were good buddies, and I really hadn't been to New York before, but um, I had a few weeks off, so I went down and spent some time with Donnie and uh, his girlfriend at the time. And Donnie was training, so I went with him to the gym, a famous gym called Gleason's every day. Donnie was uh, managed by David Wolf, And at Gleason's, when I walked into Gleason's, and I actually did a story there as well, which my sports director, Peter Young, got a camera. It was so hard to get cameras. He had to rent guys. I did a story about Gleason's gym. Donnie training it was a it was absolutely something out of the Rocky movies. It's a, maybe less glamorous, <laughs> you know. It was so dirty, dungy, just smelt of um, sweat and piss and 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 blood, and it was like whatever. But I was watching Donnie, and he was he's so smooth. And I, then I was watching some of the other people. Hector Macho Camacho was there. A lot of the Latino fighters were there, and Hastamato was also there. Famous trainer, uh, mentor to a lot of boxers and I remember having my camera and I was interviewing, I went to interview one of the managers and he said, you shouldn't, the guy you should talk to is actually over there. His name is Michael, Michael Tyson. And I, I and then I looked at him he's, and he was like this little warrior, right? It was like, he wasn't clearly as big, but he, he could tell he was, I think he was a gold gloves champion at the time. I'm going to say he was, he might've been 16, 17. I went over, and he could not have been nicer. Like, really, so sweet. You know, just so nice to meet you. Just wonderful. Just nice and just great. Just me. Yes, yes. Oh, just wonderful. Just great. Just, just you're nice. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, I do this uh, interview with him too. I got a little clip. I don't know. I think we used it just about up and coming boxers. Anyway, had a chance. That was my first meeting with Mike Tyson. And again, you never know. I guess it goes back to the Jenner Simpson story. You know, you never know how life can change. And your path, where, where your path will lead you. And down the road, I watched Mike Tyson and, you know, we were all became fat. This guy was the savage in the ring. He was unbelievable. Greatest short right hand ever. I mean, I've watched him just destroy people. And I love, I love boxing. I love broadcasting boxing. And then again, you see him become this monster in the ring, undeniably undefeatable. And sure enough, uh, 
Then one night, you know, years later, you're watching him in a ring. Well, first of all, you're one of the craziest ones was all I, I'll never forget being at a, a hotel room in Los Angeles, getting ready for it. That was the night off of a Jets game. I was going out for dinner, but I remember turning on the fight at that day. Those days you could actually watch the fight on cable TV. Uh, Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas, I think it was from the Tokyo Dome. And I just kind of watched them think, okay, this is not going to last long. I told my buddies, I'll meet them at the Cheesecake Factory. I'll, I'll be there. Don't worry. Because they were, they were, again, no cell phones. They phoned up from the lobby. I said, I'll meet you there when this is done. It's going to be a couple minutes. Well, we know what happened. He lost. And kind of his life changed after that. You know, after that loss, he wasn't the same. And then, of course, he fought others. He won his championship back, yada, yada. And then he chewed off an ear of an opponent, of, a, of the guy who, of the guy who I gave ice cream to. This is, see, there's a lot of connections here, obviously. Yeah, and then, you know, and then, uh, of course, he, he 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 becomes a criminal, you know, charged with uh, sexual assault. Uh, his life goes off the rails. He All the millions, he, he was buying tigers and llamas and stuff and became broke and destitute. He had so many issues. Then he gets a part in the Hangover movie and his life changed, and he tat- puts a tattoo all over his face. And now if you look at Mike Tyson, he's this like, he's got his own podcast. He's living the high life again. It's, but I, 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 I hearken back to that day. Every time I see it, I, I tell people, you guys wouldn't have not believed Mike Tyson. It was like staggering to think that this, that if I would have thought then, if I had a crystal ball, I never in a million years would have forecast the life of Mike Tyson. Well, Rod, I got another one for you as we continue the surreal tour of your career. Back in your Winnipeg days, you once introduced... That's a good That's a good world. Surreal life, surreal sports, surreal TV. Back in your Winnipeg days, you once introduced Bill Cosby to the stage for a comedy show. He was on top of the comedy world at the time. You nervously asked him how he wanted to be introduced, but he just wanted to eat popcorn. Yeah, yeah. and and you know, I, I tell that... When I told that story first, I, I, I've told it a number of times, but First of all, back in the 80s, we had the most popular late night TV show, late night sports show on CKY. But the most popular TV show on CTV and around the world was the Cosby show. That was un- undeniable. So when Bill Cosby came to town to play the Winnipeg Arena in front of 16,000 fans, because we were the network, they asked me at the time to introduce him. I thought, this is great. I'm Bill Cosby, I was such a fan. Everybody was a fan. I mean, his humor never had to swear. So right on the money. You know, we always kind of talk like, you know, just we're really like this, you know, was it Bill Cosby. So I uh, remember getting there. I was really kind of nervous. I didn't know. I, I got to go. And they, again, I guess all these sh- stories are tying together. The, the stage was shaped like a boxing ring for whatever reason. But I'm in the dressing room with my girlfriend at the time. And I remember waiting for him because I, I, you know, I'd I'd like to meet him before I introduced the dude. And sure enough, he uh, comes in and he goes, how's it going there? It's it's good to see you. Yes, yes. Yes, indeed it is. And so he sat down, we were watching TV. I'll never forget. He was, had his popcorn and he was just picking one piece at a time and, you know, talking, we talk. And then we talk, he loves sports. We talk, he talks sports. We talked about, I, I was a huge, my, one of my dreams in life was to be a Harlem Globetrotter. The first white Globetrotter never came to fruition. I did get to play with him though, but he was a Globetrotter. A lot of people don't know Harlem Globetrotter at one time and he played with them and we talked and talked. It was great. So and that's when I said, 
you know, how do you, how, how, how should I introduce you? I mean, just listen, listen, go out there and just, just be yourself. <laughs> so I got out, out there and I, on, the other thing, I, I got out on the stage and I went and the light goes on. People are screaming. I, I'm sure they were like, they saw me come in, the scream stopped. And I went, good evening. I'm Bill Cosby. <laughs> and I got a laugh. And then he came in and I introduced, it was a short introduction. He comes through the ropes. He goes, see, that wasn't so bad after all. But you know, it's so funny, you know, as time again changes and shifts, who would have thought how life changes? And Bill Cosby became this miscreant, one of the worst, most evil men in Hollywood for what he perpetrated on these women through the years. And I, I you know, I had to hearken back to that. And I remember my girlfriend at the time, very attractive woman. I'll never forget also, though, in that dressing room, how he was hitting on her, you know? And I, I never dawned on me until years later, but I'm glad we weren't at a bar, you know? <laughs> and it, it kind of goes back to that, what I said before, you know, people are people, but good people are really good people. And anybody has got a really dark side to them. But if you've, if you've, got, if you've got some evil in your heart, that evil is gonna gonna come out at some point. The Cosby story, that that life story, that's that is another one where you would in a galaxy you would never think would happen. Totally crazy, totally surreal. Now, Rod, you took an Uber with Rector's great Morris Peterson and Snoop Dogg. What a headline! Uh, please share that story. <laughs> you got you're doing some good research, or you got some good friends. I didn't even know this was a All Star Game, New York City, and. Morris Peterson was working with us. Ubers had just come out. I didn't even know what an Uber was. I honestly, I thought I, Uber, that's like, uh, you're Uber talented? What is that? Uber, Uber. I don't know what that is. So at the hotel and uh, I call Mo and I said, you know, let's go to the, we're going to go to MSG. Let's go to the game. I said, I'll, he goes, Roddy, Roddy, don't worry. I got an Uber. I got an Uber. I'll meet you outside the hotel. I'll be there in 10 minutes. And it was cold. I'll never forget how freaking cold it was. I want to say Jack Armstrong was with me, but I don't think he was at that point. So I'm waiting outside on the, the curb, and then I see this big black Ford Explorer or Lincoln Lincoln show up. Maybe I think it was an Escalade. Pulls up, and the door is open, and it was cold, so you could see your breath and everything. But I, there's this massive cloud comes out of the freaking back of the car, and it's Mo Pete. And again, this is before like cannabis and weed, and I don't I don't smoke weed, and never have smoked weed. And it's uh, it's like, man, it's like a weed factory. And I look at Snoop Dogg in the back seat with him. And Snoop Dogg was so nice, but he was so baked. And so I got in. We go to MSG. I hung, I hung out with Mo Pete and Snoop Dogg for the night. That was so much fun. And and, and again, I, I, I don't do drugs. But I will tell you, I am convinced I had the munchies about two hours later just being in the vehicle. Because... I, I, you couldn't help but be stoned from the excess smoke that was in the vehicle and outside. It was it was like we were the rolling weed mobile. And who would think today, Snoop Dogg, one of the most marketable people out there? Now there's a guy, yeah, but there's a guy who hasn't changed. He still smokes his weed, and he's still loved by everybody, and he's marketed by everybody. And go, and you know something? Great dude, great dude. He lives his brand. Now, Rod, despite everything you've done in your career, there's actually one gig that people may not know you were going to do, but didn't actually do. You were actually hired by Phil Esposito 
to be mm. the very first play-by-play guy for the Tampa Bay Lightning, along with Ron Greshner, what eventually stopped that from happening? Yeah, I, I, I wanted that. I wanted to do it because I really, I was really bursting into kind of play-by-play. I was always a host, but I had not done a lot of play-by-play, even though I'd done it in my mind so many times as a kid. And so I was in, when I was in Toronto working for CTV, had the great gig, and then one of my real supporters at the time, when I was doing NHL hockey, I did the Jets on CKY in Winnipeg, was was Phil Esposito, who worked for MSG, Madison Square Garden Network. And every time he came, he goes, "Listen, Blackie, I, I gotta get, I gotta get, I gotta get you a gig in New York. You gotta come work with us in New York." I said, "Oh yeah, whatever, whatever." It was it was very flattering, but I never thought of it. And then Phil, after he left Madison Square Garden Network, he, he got into a hockey ownership, and so he, along with uh, I think a group of Japanese investors purchased the Tampa Bay Lightning. And sure enough, when he purchased the Lightning, I can't remember exactly the year, but he said, I promise you, I promise you, yeah, I want you. You're going to be my play-by-play guy with uh, Ron Greshner, who was a great New York Ranger. And I said, Phil, I'm in. I said, I'm in. I, 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 so I took it. I didn't even answer. But I, I knew that I could, I, so I asked him, I asked CTV if I could do the games. They loved it. I, my schedule wasn't uh, that demanding at the time. I could do some games. They could fill in for me. I, I was. It was about, at the time, again, they didn't do every game. So it might have been like 30, 20 to 30 games. So they said, yes. I got the blessing of CTV. And I said, Espo, just as long as, you know, you guys are fine with me doing my CTV stuff. Because it was Olympics. I didn't want to lose the Olympics and all that other stuff. I had this dream job. And he came back and got, Blackie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, uh, listen, I want you. The only thing is they want you full-time. You got to be down here. You got to work full-time. And I said, I'll get back to him. And then I got back to him. I think I had an agent at the time and I told him no. I said, cause I, I, I can't give this up. You know, I was, and, and I, I, you know, I, and they were so fledgling too. They played in the Thunderdome where the, the Rays play now that it, it was, it was made for hockey at the beginning. It was like a big convention center. Now they play baseball there. Um, they were very fledgling and, you know, nobody knew if that team was ever going to survive. I mean, they brought in a couple Florida teams at the time and was like, I don't know, whatever. And then, you know, a few years later, they hear they win the Stanley Cup as well. And it, it's, they become fantastic. I, I look back on it and go, geez, what if I would have been, you know, because I love the sun and I love golf. <laughs> I love hockey. It would have been perfect. But I never would have, you know, don't have no regrets on on saying no, but Espo, poor Espo, like, cause I said yes. And they had a press conference all scheduled, I guess, for us to be at and a press release out. He put it out and he didn't talk to me for, I don't know, probably a decade. <laughs> then we became buddies. I did the Gretzky radio show and I love the man. I love Phil Esposito. He's a, he's a legend in, in hockey and broadcasting and life. He's larger than life. Um, but for, for, for a period of 10, 10 years, he was a ghost because <laughs> I we didn't talk to each other. Very glad to hear that you made up. Now, Rod, I reviewed every single assignment of yours over the last four decades. And the one that was really outside the box for me, you traveled to Cairo, Egypt to cover squash. Oh, yeah. In closed court, situated amongst the pyramids. Yeah. And you know what's so funny about that? It was one of those, we, we, they sent us around the world to do uh, a bunch of events. We had, it was like a wide world of sports. It was called CTV Sports Presents. We also worked, I also was doing some freelance stuff for, I believe it's called Sky TV. Our 
sports director, our vice president at the time, was carving deals around the world. We had a lot of properties at CTV, not as many as CBC, but we had the Blue Jays and Expos. We had tennis, golf. We had a Canada Cup occasionally. We had the Roses Parade. <laughs> I like that one. Figure skating, obviously. So we had a lot, but on supplement on Saturdays, we would, I would also do skiing, auto racing. And what we would do, Andrew, is we would, they would send myself and the color commentator who analyst, whoever that was that week, let's say it was skiing, Todd Brooker was with me. He, they would send us to Banff to do just, all we'd go to Banff for is just to film the opening. We would come back home and voice the the piece live to tape. You know, I, back in that era, I hate to tell everybody out there, but a lot of that stuff that you watched, we had already seen. And so a lot of the, you know, I'm not saying it was, con- I didn't want to see it a lot of times. I wanted it to happen. I told all my producers, I don't want to know what happened. Just let it flow and we're treat it like live. But invariably, it never worked out that way. If we went to auto racing, if I went to the Indy 500, for instance, I'd have, oh, I don't know who it was at the time. It might have been Scott Goodyear or when, when uh, for instance, when Jacques Villeneuve won, I would use, you know, we, we'd be down there, we we tape stuff and uh, whatever it was. And so we did tons of those events like that. <laughs> Just go into a town. I went to Garmisch Partenkirchen. Garmisch Partenkirchen to do a ski jump. Went all the way there. Mad, beautiful place. Ski jump there is incredible. I believe it's a ski jump that uh, the ABC Wide World of Sports, I could be wrong, where the guy goes flying, the, the agony of defeat. Anyway, and again, I just come home, then we voice it. Skating, we did it all the time. One of the calls I got with Sky was to go to Cairo, Egypt, do the opening for a exhibition squash match. I'm going like, wow. But I was so busy. A lot of the times, unfortunately, I went to all these great places, but I would go in and out. I would come in and I'd literally leave the next day. And Cairo was like that. I went in, did my opening right next to the pyramids. And the court, I'll never forget, was glass. It was a glass court. And Jonathan Power, I believe, was the was playing Jahangir Khan. I could be wrong on who exactly was playing. It was a tournament. He had thousands of people watching. That might be an overestimation, but there were, there were a lot of people right by the pyramids. You can't make that up. And I flew in, did it flew it back. We voiced that thing. I don't even, I don't even know. I think we voiced that thing about two months later and I completely forgot. That was TV back then though. That's how a lot of that stuff worked. You would voice, you would voice stuff after. And, um, Hey, we talked about the Olympics. We never did this. I'm glad we never did this. I think others had, but I do recall CBS at the time would actually voice because they did everything in prime time, especially the skating. Uh, this was in 94, actually, at Lillehammer, I recall. They voiced the skating after, after the event. To me, that was always wrong because you, you know, you could build a drama. It was nice. You could build a drama. You could s- sports, Andrew, one thing I've learned through life, sports does not have scripts. It can't have scripts. Anytime you write a script in sport, you might as well throw it in the garbage because it's so unpredictable. And that, that's why this journey is, has been so insatiable for me and 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 unforgettable almost every ending in every game is not scripted and that's what makes it so beautiful now rod you've been so great with your time so let me close with this the great kenny albert has been a guest on this podcast and he calculates oh has he really absolutely oh i love the alberts well and he calculates he has worked with over 250 different analysts for all the different sports he's covered 
you are the only guy I can think of who has possibly worked with as many different broadcast partners. You want to give a shout out to some of the various partners you've worked with? Sure. I don't think it, I don't think it's as many as Kenny, but it probably is up there. I know one thing for sure, and this is not this is not braggadocio. It's nobody in Canada worked with more commentators just because I did, had so many gigs, I had so many jobs, I had to work for a living. I had a lot of kids to feed. One of my first ever analysts was in Winnipeg. My first ever live broadcast was a golf event, the Manitoba Open. Was Dale Howardchuck, the late Dale Howardchuck? He we actually put him into the booth. Rest his soul. I love that guy so much. So Dale Howardchuk, uh, Terry Hashimoto, who was in golf. I'm going to try to go through the years. Clearly, Tracy Wilson, Debbie Wilkes, Brian Orser, Barb Underhill in skating, Elvis Stoiko in sta- skating. Uh, I will I'll put Kurt Browning in there because we might have done one together. Uh, Jamie Saleh and David Pelche. That's over 10 now. Jennifer Robinson, Elizabeth Manley. Those are all in skating. I'm at almost at 13 now. Anybody else in skating? Let me think. Could I? Uh, I said Debbie Wilkes. Did I say Debbie? Yes, I did say Debbie Wilkes. Uh, I hope I'm not missing anybody else from like the again analysts. I mean, again, we had other hosts in that. Oh, uh, Victor Kratz as well did some skating with me. Let's go to. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go through the sports. You got enough time here? How long is this podcast? Let's go to hockey, where I worked with. Uh, uh, John Garrett did a game with me. I started doing some play-by-play there, but as I did hockey, I worked with Mike uh, Mike Keenan, uh, Mike Johnson, Glenn Healy, Howie Meeker, Roger Nielsen. Uh, I'm getting up to 20 now. I, I don't think I get 250. Dave Reed, Bob Airy, uh, Cheryl Pounder, Jennifer Botterill, Tessa Bonome in women's hockey. Trying to think of other hockey ones that I've, I've worked with. Oh, there's probably so many. Oh, uh, Craig Button. I'll give him a good shout out as well. I did Hockey Canada games with him. Oh, gosh. I, I The names, they got to keep flowing. I'm, I got, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, let's go from hockey for a sec. Let's go to baseball where I, it's, a, it's smaller. I worked with Joe Carter as my first analyst, but I also worked with Dave Van Horing and Ken Singleton and also worked, who I worked with the Expos with. Anybody else? Um, I worked with Gary Carter. <laughs> then, then uh, the Joe Carter and the Blue Jays, uh, Pat Tabler. I, I did so many years of broadcast. One of my favorite announcers, one of my favorite guys of all time. Just loved him so dearly. Uh, Kelly Gruber came in. Darnell Coles came in doing games. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's a lot of people here. Again, I, I treat analysts as also being on the, the studio desk. So um, I worked with Cito for a while. Uh, okay, so th- those are some from there, from football. Of course, Dwayne Dwayne Ford was... Oh, by the way, Dwayne Ward also worked. And I went from Dwayne Ward to Dwayne Ford. Natural segue. Dwayne Ford in CFL football. Leif Pedersen, rest his soul. Late, late Leif Pedersen. I love dearly. Used to prank him all the time. I loved pranking him. Had one of the most harassable, grumpy guys who had a huge heart. I love him. And uh, his spirit hovers over us every day. Danny McMathis, who was I had so much fun with, man, doing games, drinking beer, was unbelievable, dude, to work with. Uh, Matt Dunnigan, uh, Glenn Souter, go on and on. I'm trying to. I don't want to miss anybody because I know they're going to say, "Oh, you miss me." They're all so memorable because everybody did broadcast games and radio too, and that helped. Um, okay, I'll, I'll go from where am I going next? Give me a sport. Let's go to golf. Oh, Jim Nelford, who became one of my best friends, my parts. Uh, we worked together. I worked with uh, Greg Norman and David Faraday. 
Oh, Rodders. Love David Ferty. One of my favorite guys. Oh, Rodders. It's a, it's a nice... That's, that green is a lot like you. Shallow, hard to hit. Ben, uh, oh, Big Ben. I worked with him for such a long time. At Summerall, I actually worked some golf with uh, Al Balding, Richard Solkoll. Gosh, and I've never thought about this before, so if I ever do write these down, I would be much better with my memory on them. Uh, Jack Nicholas, I had a chance to broadcast with uh, Sandra Post, of course, Donco Jones, Gail Graham, tennis. Are we off the air yet? Tennis, I worked with John McEnroe and Billie Jean King at one time, and Mary Carrillo, and Don Fontana, who I did so many broadcasts with, Tracy Austin was incredible to work with. I loved working with her. Where am I? Where would I? Basketball, Leo and Sam and Jack and Matt, Kate, Kia, uh, and James Worthy in, in Vancouver, Jay Triano. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm probably getting up there now. I mean, I, I, I was so lucky to work with all these. Jack Donahue, I miss every day one of the greatest people in any of our lives in basketball i can go i'm gonna i'm gonna stop because i'm gonna miss any what other major sport have i missed i've been auto racing i did scott goodyear jackie stewart i did bowling but it was to tape and i can't uh, i wasn't pete Weber or anybody but it was on ctv and it was to tape so it wasn't really live but i yeah bowling would be i did some and the crazy 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 sports that i've uh, through the years that all of these commentators I, I don't think I missed too many. I mean, I, if I did, I, I'm sure, look at that's somebody calling me now. They, they know I missed. See that? They absolutely know that I missed that. But, you know, here, I'll tell you who the craziest commentator I ever worked with. Hockey goes Hollywood, Winnipeg Arena, team of celebrities come to Winnipeg. And, I'll, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic we're talking now, but on that team were so many great, great celebrities. I got to know Alan Thicke was playing on that team at that time. Matthew Perry, a young Matthew Perry. Rest his soul was also on that team playing with his dad. They had a lot of celebrities. I, what's it, the guy who played MacGyver? Something John JD something. Can't remember his name. He was on all these a lot of Canadians, and so we broadcast that game. My color commentator, my analyst for the game. You can't make this up. Jesse the Body Ventura. Dad. He kept in the middle. He goes, hey dude, stop talking, man. Let me talk, man. You gotta let me talk, man. You know what? I got. Hey, listen. What's that? I, I. Why is that guy? Why didn't they? Let's get a fight going. These guys can't fight, man. You gotta come on, brother. So he was my color commentator. He, he was one of the most unique commentators of 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 my life. I got to know a lot of the wrestlers. I was lucky. We every week we had a plays of the week, and we had a wrestlers introduce them: Randy the Macho Man Savage and Hulk Hogan, and me, the announcer, Mean Gene Okerlund. You know, I guess one of the things in life is it's it's a good lesson. Ne- never miss an opportunity to meet somebody, and and don't be shy about meeting somebody. I I never had a problem going up to them and say, "Hey, listen, can you introduce this for me, or could I get an interview with you?" And and sure enough, but that that that's a long answer I just gave you. That could be a whole podcast just on the people I've worked with. Maybe not as much as Kenny Albert. By the way, I worked with Marv at one time too, but I was I've been very lucky and very blessed uh, to to work with an incredible group of people uh, who through the years I may not see may I haven't talked to some of them for decades but if we see each other it sparks up a memory and I consider them all dear 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 friends and I've been very very lucky 
great way to cap it off. Rod Black, I want to thank you very much for your time. It was great. And Andrew Applebaum. And Andrew Applebaum. We're a great Forgot team. about him. Please add me to your list. Yeah. And I want to thank you for all your stories. And of course, I want to wish you a continued success. Thank you. I appreciate it. And to the listeners, on behalf of Rod Black, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.